MemSQL is a high-performance end-memory database that combines the horizontal scalability of distributed systems with the familiarity of SQL. Nikita Shamganov is co-founder and CTO of MemSQL. Nikita, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Oh, thank you very much, Jeff. What is MemSQL? So, in short, MemSQL is a database um, with the goal of taking every enterprise real-time. Um, so that's kind of a high-level marketing uh, message, uh, but what it uh, translates to, it's just fast, scalable SQL. When you say in-memory, uh, it's something that we kind of really started, uh, in-memory database, and in-memory is uh, uh, really hyped up right now, um, but it's really memory first, uh, which means that uh, a lot of operations uh, that we do on the database as we run uh, SQL, and uh, especially sophisticated SQL, um, take advantage of the abundance of memory that modern systems have. Um, but the, the system uh, certainly ha can handle more data than there is memory. Have there been some sort of hardware advances that have allowed for memory to be significantly cheaper? Well, uh, one is just, you know, traditional commoditization curve and hardware gets cheaper all the time. Um, and uh, memory gets cheaper all the time. Uh, but if you make... An observation, um, which I think not only MemSQL but um, others have done in the past as well, uh, including Mike Stonebreaker, they say, well, let's look at the database workloads and what types uh, of database workloads are there. Uh, that was around the, the famous article of Stonebreaker that one size doesn't fit all. Um, and there's OLTP, which stands for Online Transactional Processing, uh, and then there's OLAP, Online Analytical Processing. Uh, which basically uh, flourished into this whole big data uh, market. So uh, you can make an observation that transactional processing systems uh, deal with relatively small amount of data. And what is relatively small? What's in, in, into terabytes or so tens of terabytes? And today, if you buy an Oracle system or a SQL Server system, um, I'm going to reference SQL Server when I reference uh, standard databases since I worked there for a long time. Um, you, you'll notice that you only handle maybe terabytes, maybe tens of terabytes. Now, as you go into uh, OLAP, online analytical processing, uh, you basically start to step into the world of big data. Uh, and storing all that data in memory is just not economical and, and it's impractical. Uh, and the message, kind of the claim is, online transactional processing will end up in memory. Maybe not today, maybe not for everything, but, you know, over time, you're going to have relatively small clusters that store all their data in RAM. You mentioned Michael Stonebreaker's paper, One Size Does Not Fit All. Do you also extend this discussion of one size does not fit all to the notion of polyglot persistence where most large companies will need multiple strategies uh, of database storage and access? Um, well, that's certainly where the market is today because uh, this claim, the Soundbreakers claim uh, that one size doesn't fit all is certainly very, very true. Now, um, and... and new database technologies and new database systems pop in, uh, you know, every few months right now. And you have a separate one for time series, you have a separate one for your data warehouse, you have a separate time, a type for scientific calculations. 
Um, and this is all uh, this is all great because you know you, you have this new technology is popping up, and then it's going to be consolidation and commoditization um, eventually. But now is a very interesting time. Um, the history lesson of databases is that uh, eventually a, a single system starts to kind of acquire and grab into uh, other workloads. And so that certainly uh, has been strategy for Oracle and SQL Server. Um, and by 2001, uh, they basically did it. So if you were thinking of data in 2001, um, and, and then SQL Server Oracle would just almost certainly solve all your requirements. Now what happened is uh, people started to collect more data. Uh, and the uh, uh, amount of data started to grow exponentially. And that started with Web 2.0 companies and, and then proceeded to Internet of Things and, and telemetry and, and all this stuff. Um, and back in 2007, uh, you know, I, I went to a presentation of uh, Jim's Gray presentation um, at Microsoft. So he said, you know, we solved all the data generated by humans, but we haven't solved all the data generated by machines, and that's kind of the next frontier. Um, that certainly uh, became, uh, became true. You mentioned Oracle. I read a comparison of MemSQL to Oracle 12C. MemSQL writes to memory first and then to disk, whereas Oracle 12C does the opposite, writing to disk first, then to memory. To put a finer point on the trade-offs between end memory and disk databases, could you compare these two write strategies? Oh, absolutely. Um, it actually goes slightly farther than, than you described in your question. Uh, Oracle has so-called in-memory option, uh, which is uh, just a column store index attached to their on-disk table. So, but, you know, one step at a time. Um, MemSQL uh, has two types of storage, and that's row stores and column stores. And, uh, and so does Oracle. Oracle has row stores uh, and column stores. And for MemSQL, a roster has to fit in memory, not necessarily on one machine. MemSQL is a cluster technology, and so you can have a cluster of machines, um, but row store data must fit in memory in MemSQL. Um, in Oracle, it's not this, the case. Uh, in Oracle, uh, Oracle tables are stored as B trees, um, and they can certainly handle more data than there is memory on the machine. Now, uh, it's different for column stores uh, in Oracle. Uh, their column store index must fit in memory. And that's why they're promoting their gigantic machines. Uh, I think they, uh, they're called Spark, uh, but not to confuse with Apache Spark. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in those machines, they, they, they have terabytes of RAM. And that's where they suggest customers to store, um, to leverage their in-memory option. Uh, needless to say, it's millions of dollars for, for the machine. Uh, now, the right strategy is uh, in Oracle, as you uh, insert a record into a table, uh, the record goes into a B tree, and they also uh, write the record into the transaction log. And as the transaction commits, they guarantee that the data hits the disk. Now, by default, MemSQL uh, also maintains a transaction log, but at the commit time, uh, we do not 
call so-called F-sync. So we don't, uh, we don't guarantee that the record hits the disk. Uh, that allows us to sustain higher throughput um, than Oracle. Now, you can certainly configure MemSQL so that it does persist it to disk before it acknowledges uh, a transaction. Uh, but that's basically um, the choice we give to the user and whatever the user wants to optimize for. Uh, go so, ahead. So what types of data does a user generally want to keep on disk versus on an in-memory database? Is that a useful distinction to draw? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in general, uh, the data that you want to have millisecond access to, you want to keep in memory. Because the moment you throw an I.O. operation uh, into the mix, especially at scale, uh, you start to have unpredictable latencies. So, so this brings us to a conversation about real-time applications. Could you define what a real-time application is? Oh, that's a very tricky question. Uh, the reason is uh, a lot of people think uh, about real-time, and, and all of them have different definitions of what real-time is. So if you serve ads or uh, if you build an, you know, a, an iPhone app and you serve data into the iPhone app, uh, real time is really in milliseconds because you absolutely have to serve an ad uh, under an SLA. And if you don't, uh, you know, they, they will, the ad will go to someone else. If you uh, build a phone app, uh, again, uh, if your app is not responsive, then uh, you're going to start losing your, your, your users, your customers. And then Google, a long time ago, had a study how their, their traffic increases the faster they, they serve their search queries. And so uh, Google search index is certainly in memory. Mm. Now, for analytics, real-time um, also means kind of different things. So there's a query latency, uh, something, uh, how fast you get your results as you issue an analytical query, and the query could be, what are my sales uh, broken down by state? And then there's also data latency, which is some people usually uh, not think about in the first place, but it's a very, very important concept. Uh, the data latency is the amount of time this data makes it into your analytical system from the mo moment it's born. And uh, that goes into the notion of uh, ETL pipelines, extract, transform, and load. And so for many, many enterprises, it could be days. Uh, it was certainly uh, about 24 hours uh, at Facebook before the data that's born uh, that makes it into Hadoop and then available for analysts to query. I did a conversation with Eli Collins from Cloudera, and he talked about something called return on byte, which is where you measure the, not necessarily the financial return, but basically the, the value of getting data updated at a certain rate. Do you have any interesting metric sort of strategies for determining the, you know, where, you, where along the gradient uh, of, of speed you want to present data to people? Um. So, I wouldn't say we have a metric here. Um, what I can say, though, is that there's the notion of the value of data, and the fresher the data is, the more valuable it is. 
and, and you can almost have some sort of uh, a graph that represents the value of data of how, um, uh, compared to how fresh it is. And the fresher, the better. So most companies uh, care about the last quarter. But also, the data that's been generated in the past few minutes is more important than data that's been generated in the past hour, more important than the past day, the past month, the past week, and the past month. And uh, since MemSQL is the real-time analytics space, the workloads that we see um, are you know, something uh, in the lines of you know, A-B testing, where people generate data, uh, throw it into MemSQL, and immediately see uh, their return on investments. Or they push code into production and they immediately see the impact of that code, uh, which lets them make a decision, should the code be rolled back, or that was a success, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the proliferation of real-time applications seems to be in part driven by certain fundamental technological breakthroughs. I think a few examples of those are WebSockets and you know, mobile applications, just the fact that you always are carrying around a mobile application, therefore your state in the network is al always being updated by this uh, device that's kind of tracking your uh, behavior. I don't want to say that, not in a negative sense, it's just, it, it is, it's constant data. Um, what are some other fundamental technological breakthroughs, maybe some more subtle ones, that lead to the proliferation of real-time applications? For sure. Um, so uh, there are industries uh, that are driving um, real-time usage, uh, and certainly mobile uh, and ad tech um, are those. The other thing is uh, people have become way more impatient, um, and I think uh, the likes of Facebook and Instagram and, and mobile apps uh, enable that types of behaviors. Um, and now people want to have instant gratification and instant um, uh, response to to their actions. The so that's kind of from the, on the on the consumer side. The next frontier is well, your your data centers, your uh, technology should be available twenty four seven, um, and that was uh, you know since the uh, since Web two point and even more so with mobile, uh, which was not the case in the past, right? In the past, you know, in the financial world, you could be trading during the day and then loading data into your analytic uh, data warehouses uh, overnight. And that was kind of the business cycle and it was just fine. You know, today uh, with Web 2.0, it's, it's just, and, and mobile is just not the case. And then from the technology perspective, um, there's been a lot of innovations around so-called Lambda architecture and the ability to basically fork uh, data pipelines and use you know, your operational systems that are going in and ingesting data from uh, the same pipeline that's also forked and you're pushing data into your analytical systems. And that really allows you to both kind of uh, ingest data and query data in, in real time. Could you define the Lambda architecture? Uh, so I think I'm, I will need to reference Wikipedia for that. <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 your definition. Okay, okay. So uh, it was defined by Nathan Mars, uh, uh, the creator of Storm. Uh, so 
I might be making like new, uh, mistakes and in, in nuances, but uh, for us and what we see in the market, uh, Lambda architecture is certainly the ability to consume and fork data and pipe it into different systems uh, without uh, a lot of disruption. So, for example, MemSQL works with Pinterest. Um, and Pinterest has their existing data pipelines uh, built on Kafka. And so Kafka just creates this like wonderful insertion point where you can say, well, you don't have real-time analytics today, uh, or, uh, uh, but you have all those Kafka streams. And let us just connect to those Kafka streams and all your existing infrastructure will continue working. Um, so that's kind of what Lambda architecture uh, uh, enables. MemSQL is designed for real-time analytics on a changing data set. When MemSQL was first created, what were the existing solutions for users who needed real-time analytics? Um, sure. Uh, there, there were some uh, mild real-time capabilities uh, in data warehouses uh, where people would have you know, column store technology and they would front load that column store technology with uh, uh, some sort of uh, memory buffers and whatnot. Uh, people would also be using uh, just traditional relational databases, uh, which works fine for small amount of data and for uh, low throughput, but quickly breaks down uh, in the big data world. So that basically were things around uh, real-time analytics that were present on the market in the moment. Uh, at Facebook, uh, people build a project called Scuba, uh, which is uh, a, uh, a real-time analytics solution built around in-memory as well. And so MemSQL combines transaction and analytic processing. What does this actually mean? Um, sure. So transactionality is just a wonderful building block. So if you are in the, in the Silicon Valley, uh, people can consume a lot of technologies just because they're very, very smart. And they understand the trade-offs and they understand uh, you know, eventual consistency. Uh, they can build application around key values and uh, you know, just basically building blocks uh, of the deconstructed database. Uh, that's basically... Uh, almost the state of big data right now. We, we deconstructed the database. Um, now, out there, you know, outside of the, uh, outside of Bay Area, it is uh, so much harder to consume uh, all the big data technologies uh, because people have existing enterprise applications and those are built around you know, transactionality and SQL and, and uh, relational databases. So they don't work for big data, uh, but, in the, uh, but at the same time, there's, there's no easy-to-use uh, big data database. Uh, and now there is. It is MemSQL. So MemSQL is making an effort at, at bridging that gap between all of the, the, the technologies that you really need to be in the know about in the Bay Area uh, with the institutions that are... Uh, farther flung. Uh, correct. Right. So I, I can give you a simple example. Let's say you're a big bank and uh, you have all this uh, security requirements. Um, you have uh, a lot of applications that are doing reporting uh, that, that are already built out. Now, 
imagine that your data grows and the data grows doubles every 18 months. And so your traditional uh, database solution, which could be Oracle, which could be Sybase IQ, um, uh, doesn't work anymore or it gets prohibitively expensive. So you're like, okay, so uh, I, I probably need to start using some big data technologies because my data is kind of becoming big. Um, and then um, you start looking around and then there's a lot of systems that solve um, a, a particular problem. But the problem that you have is, well, I want all my applications to work. I want all my people who are trained and understand SQL very well and understand you know, data query optimization, indexes, um, all that stuff uh, to, uh, to consume technology. But now suddenly you need to kind of completely retrain um, all these people, throw away systems that understand SQL and generate reports, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but with MemSQL, there is a solution that you can basically just drop in um, with a very familiar interface. Uh, and in fact, we even support MySQL protocol on the wire. Uh, and uh, you just point your applications at it and it, it works at scale. So I want to discuss that MySQL on the wire stuff. Um, but first, I just did a series of shows on big data, and it was in some sense disingenuous because I don't have a whole lot of experience working closely with big data. I've just basically reported on the processes and the companies therein. And during the week, one of the narratives that developed, but it, this may be it, like the narrative developed just because I was imagining it, but I, I began to get this idea that there were all these managed big data companies, um, you know, like Cloudera and Confluent and Hortonworks, and if you've got all these different companies uh, managing certain components of your big data architecture, the image that I began to get in my head was all of these different support technicians from different uh, managed big data companies having to interact, and uh, you know, if you have some, some non-deterministic problem in your data center, uh, it could conceivably become really, really hard because you're trying to, to synchronize around figuring figuring out the problem while talking to all these different uh, experts who are helping you manage your big data. But uh, so as I said, I think I was actually off on this. Like, I don't think that's actually how the way things work. And considering that MemSQL is sort of one of those almost managed big data companies, could you explain to me what is uh, incorrect or maybe what is correct about that, uh, that image that I had in my head? So yeah, it's a very good question. So if you compare Cloudera Hortonworks with the companies in, uh, in the past. Uh, so they are kind of the new Red Hat. So uh, there's a, a Hadoop ecosystem and movement, uh, which is great. Uh, and it's very complex, right? HDFS is very, very complex. Hive is very, very complex and has a lot of moving parts. And so, uh, but all those technologies are open source and a lot of uh, people are, are using them and, and trying them out. Um, and what Cloudera and Hortonworks do, they are uh, basically selling you that complexity. They come in and say, oh, don't worry, just sign the contract with us and we'll navigate you through this world of complexity. Um, and, and this is a valid business strategy uh, and that's what they do. Uh, so you'll end up solving your business problem, your, your big data business problems, but you, you obviously uh, pay for it and you pay 
for consulting. You pay for people that uh, Cloudera and Hortonworks provide that help you out, architect, and build your solution. Uh, MemSQL is, is, a, is a product company. First of all, MemSQL is closed source. Um, and MemSQL puts an enormous amount of effort for the technology to be easily consumed. So you can basically one-click install MemSQL on your laptop, or you can roll it out on the cluster, uh, which generally is a, is a relatively hard problem. Uh, but you know, we'll guide you through that installation just through software. Uh, you can spin it up in the cloud, and it's just like instantly available. So it sounds like with MemSQL, there's less of an intended lock-in uh, or consulting lock-in style business model. Absolutely. Um, so because we uh, kind of follow the philosophy that everything should be a standard, so we have a standard way of connecting to MemSQL, we support standard SQL, um, we support uh, MySQL protocol on the wire, uh, there's kind of very little lock-in. The only lock-in that you can imagine is you get hooked on performance uh, and the, you get hooked on usability. Um, and then from that perspective, uh, it's going to be just hard to switch to something like, I don't know, HBase. To get back to engineering, could you talk more about the MySQL over-the-wire compliance? Sure. Um, so we do not compete with MySQL. Uh, MySQL, and I actually have a, a, an answer on Quora uh, about precisely that question. Uh, MySQL is a great technology for what it does, uh, which is a single box transactional database uh, that is uh, very, very easy to use and, and deploy uh, and understand. Uh, for us, supporting MySQL wire protocol is basically drivers. Right, uh, the uh, the drivers are very well implemented for MySQL, uh, and they're everywhere. And usually, they even pre-installed to a large number of systems. And so, supporting that uh, just allows us to plug into this enormous ecosystem, which is you know products like SQL Pro for developing your applications, uh, you know Tableau. Uh, for BI, MicroStrategy for BI, uh, clients for Python, Ruby, and Java. And, and so we can just like leverage all that ecosystem and not have to go and build a driver for every single uh, uh, integration that's out there. And that's an enormous amount of work. I so see. So, so are you saying that you, instead of writing a layer of Compatibility with MemSQL for Tableau and all, all these other things that you would normally have to write some sort of driver, some sort of communication layer between MemSQL and those those pre-existing solutions. You just essentially went lower level and uh, and put in a layer of compliance with. Oh well, I shouldn't say put in a layer. You implemented the compliance with MySQL. If you think of MySQL as an interface, you implemented that interface. So now yeah. everything that needs to communicate with MySQL can communicate with MemSQL. That's right. That, that's, that's precisely right. Uh, that was, you know, we've made a few mistakes, obviously, early on, like any other technology company. Uh, but that was a great decision for us. 
So what were the, I mean, how, how difficult, that sounds like it's uh, pretty challenging. What, cause, cause uh, you know, MySQL is this uh, like really proven technology. I know nothing about the spec of the interface, but uh, I imagine it's pretty difficult to, to implement that compliance. Could you talk some about that engineering process? Uh, sure. Uh, so it, there are actually layers of, of compliance. So um, the protocol itself, the network protocol itself, is something that's, a, that's a, a relatively straightforward task for a systems engineer. So you read the spec, you understand what, what bytes you put on the wire, and you just go and follow that spec. Um, some, you know, there are some quirks, obviously. Uh, oh, so you're saying it's not that hard. It's more like you just have to have this insight first, and then you do it. Yeah, and then you do it. The, the harder part is uh, supporting what it's called system variables and uh, information schema and uh, all these commands that go beyond just the wire protocol. Right? So I'll give you an example. When, uh, when a typical application uh, connects to MySQL, uh, you know, it establishes a kind of network handshake, sends a few bytes uh, back and forth, and says, and now that, okay, we have this connection. But the second thing, they usually send a few commands, like, oh, and what are the databases in the system? Uh, and which collation you support? Uh, and, you know, there, there could be a few kind of commands that you need to support in order to plug in into, uh, into existing My, My, MySQL tools. But once you implement those, then, uh, then it's, like, wonderful. So if I've built an application that uses MySQL, what is the migration process to MemSQL? So that goes back to my remark that we don't really compete with MySQL. So, and and we, do, we do not kind of replace MySQL application. Okay. Um, so, and, and the reason to this is, is this is cluster technology, and it, it kind of solves slightly different set of problems. Uh, it certainly is possible uh, to uh, move from MySQL to MemSQL, but that might require you to do, you know, some schema changes and, and possibly some query rewrites that uh, uh, that come with the understanding that you not only you have tables and indexes, but you also have data distribution, uh, so wait, and you is, need to keep that in mind. So, if, so if I add MemSQL to my system, is it replacing something like Oracle, or is this simply like something that augments your database, your database solutions? Um, we often see uh, augmentation. You know, that was you know our story with Pinterest. Uh, but we also uh, see replacement of really high-end systems, such as uh, Oracle Exadata. Interesting. So the, the reason people buy Oracle Exadata is because uh, the performance requirements. Uh, are such that the traditional Oracle database cannot uh, keep it up. And so, um, so they go and buy this like massive RN appliance. And then once you make this leap, uh, you can make even further leap and say, okay, well, I, I want to try a scale-out technology that runs on commodity hardware uh, for, for my application. And then they try that and, and they see massive performance improvements and also it's much cheaper. How does the onboarding experience compare with users of AWS or Azure or on-premise? Maybe you could just talk a bit about the onboarding experience as a whole. Uh, absolutely. So um, 
we think about those things as, as distribution channels. Uh, and uh, if you want us to spin up MSQL on um, AWS or Azure, you can go to cloud.memsql.com, fill out a small form, and then it will drop you into AWS uh, interface where you just need to log in with your credentials, uh, click a few more buttons, and then that's it. The cluster is up and running. Um, we also integrate with Azure and AWS marketplaces, but those are what we call clusters in a box. So this is something that allows you to, you know, basically play with the technology uh, and, and understand it in a kind of constrained environment. And then once it proves value for you, uh, you can go and create a much larger cluster, I don't know, 10, 20, uh, 100 nodes. Uh, we also uh, integrate with, you know, uh, with Mesosphere. And so in, in Mesosphere, you can um, basically drag and drop MemSQL um, and create a cluster as well. Now, integrations are great, but people also want to run it on, your, on, on their laptops, and people uh, want to run them on-premises, on their hardware, or uh, on virt virtualized hardware in, in VMware. And so we put a lot of effort into creating a, uh, an installer, uh, basically a system that you can run on one server, and then it drops you into a graphical UI, um, web UI, uh, where you can add, you know, SSH keys and IP addresses and then click next, 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 uh, and kind of voila, you have a cluster running on, you know, 100 nodes inside your private data center. Apache Spark is an in-memory processing engine that is iconic of the movement towards real-time applications. How do your users, and how does MemSQL leverage Apache Spark? Um, this is a very good question. Um, so uh, it's very much complementary technology to MemSQL. So Apache Spark does not have any persistence, um, and it does not have any transactionality. Uh, it does not kind of have a, a, a serving layer. Um, at the same time, uh, uh, Apache Spark has streaming, uh, and Spark streaming is, is a wonderful technology that we see a lot um, in the market. And so what you can do is you can leverage Spark Streaming to subscribe to data pipelines, uh, kind of going back to this, uh, our early conversation about Lambda architecture, uh, transform the data, um, and then push that data into MemSQL. Um, and the reason you want to put your, push your data into MemSQL is because MemSQL kind of has persistence, so you can store that data um, in the database and makes this data uh, available for analytics uh, immediately. So, so I just, that, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so this is basically kind of the vanilla uh, example how uh, MemSQL interacts uh, with Spark and specifically with Spark streaming. The other thing is um, that our customers use with Spark is uh, analytics beyond SQL. So they put, we put a lot of effort into making distributed SQL work really, really fast and efficient. Uh, but SQL is an API that is very powerful but also constrained. Um, and with Spark, you can uh, go and do analytics beyond SQL, uh, things like machine learning and data science and so on. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read somewhere that uh, MemSQL can be used to augment Spark with 
kind of an acid compliance type of model. Is that correct? Um, Maybe I yeah, misread that. Of course. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, of course. Oh, no, that's right. Okay. Yeah, MemSQL has acid, right? So you can do, you know, begin transaction and then do a whole bunch of stuff and then decide if you want to commit it or, uh, or, or roll back. Right. And so so once, once, if I have acid compliance uh, together with Spark, um, how does that change what I think of as the database? So if you think about a database, uh, acid is very important. Uh, that's basically uh, almost kind of synonym. Not synonyms, but kind of acid usually comes with a database. Um, and what it lets you do is uh, it lets you kind of control the way you change your, the data in the database. Spark uh, is read-only. Uh, it's built around uh, the notion of RDE, resilient uh, uh, data sets that's, uh, that are immutable. So this immutability kind of goes through this whole uh, design of, of, of how Spark uh, performs the computations. And so that's why the, the, those technologies are very much complementary. So I just I just did a show, uh, like I said, I did a series of shows on big data, and one of them was about Spark. And throughout these shows, there was a theme of companies migrating from completely batch architecture to an architecture that usually had batch and streaming. Tell me more about how you see this shift occurring and whether is the eventuality completely streaming architectures or uh, is that missing the point? How, how do you see the shift at MemSQL? Um, uh, sure. So let's say you have Bash, right? So you live in the world of, um, I don't know, let's say Hadoop, uh, and you're running MapReduce jobs. Uh, now then, uh, it, there's a very natural kind of transition to, uh, to keep certain um, computations in batch because maybe they're large-scale computations uh, yeah, or those are kind of computations that you don't care about or you don't want to put all the data in memory and whatnot um, and, and you just keep using Hadoop. And then you augment those with uh, much faster computations that you do in, uh, in a streaming manner. And, and streaming is, is, again, is also a, a word that could be used in many contexts, uh, in different contexts. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so with Spark, you can, you can perform those computations more efficiently because the computations are streamed or pipelined. Uh, and then with Spark, you can also go and subscribe to data streams for the data that's kind of, that was just born a few seconds ago. Uh, and... and, and leverage that data for your computations as well. Um, with MemSQL, the uh, similarity is the way of performing computations. So all the computation that MemSQL does uh, are, are kind of pipelined. So we do not do this map reduce stop and go operations. And with MemSQL, you can persist your streaming data and make this data immediately available for analytics. Uh, so that is kind of the difference between, you know, Spark streaming, let's say, uh, and MemSQL. And Spark is the most popular streaming solution. How does Spark compare to Apache Storm or other streaming solutions? Why why is Spark 
been uh, exponentially more popular and more talked about than these other streaming solutions? Well, um, I think it's it's the API. So uh, uh, Sparse API is uh, is wonderful uh, and is so easy to program uh, against Spark. Yeah, that's exactly what Matei Zaharia said in the interview that I did with him. Yes, um, and um, you know, and this is great uh, from from a SQL perspective. Uh, the success of Spark uh, is is a very very good thing uh, from MSQL because this means that people are uh, are doing more and more uh, real time computations uh, and uh, leveraging uh, streaming and subscribing to data streams. And once you subscribe to data streams, you need to put data somewhere, uh, and you need to put data somewhere which uh, enables you to do interesting things with the data, either serve it or further analyze uh, or you know. Uh, persisted and, and uh, attached Tableau to it and stuff like that. What I think is so interesting about that is the fact that Spark kind of uh, won on the back of of a well-designed API and not like a fundamental breakthrough like, oh, he, he does this amazing thing with directed acyclic graph structuring or something. It was, it was all about the API, um, which I think says some something about about engineering um do you focus a lot on like what is the developer experience what is the api at memsql yeah absolutely um and so our api is uh sql uh it's a structured query language uh that a lot of people understand so if you type sql on on linkedin you will have probably hundreds of millions of people uh, actually let me make this experience <laughs> uh, typing it in LinkedIn um, yeah there's just there's just enormous amount of people that 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 know SQL uh, I love the on-the-fly usage of, of LinkedIn that LinkedIn is the <laughs> as the uh, as the search engine you know, I, I yeah. remember hearing an interview with Reed Hoffman a while ago where he was talking about how people don't utilize LinkedIn in the interesting ways that they could, but it's it's really it's great to see you doing it on the fly. <laughs> yeah, that's right, and and uh, that just shows how many professionals know SQL. Um, and yes. SQL is a standard. Um, the interesting thing about this a SQL as an API is that. Wait, did you get the number back? By the way, um, so uh, five million uh, six hundred fifty-seven thousand. People results for SQL. That's pretty good. Yeah, and if you type SQL in, in Google, you know you will you will sure. get like probably insane number. Right or Google uh, Trends. Yeah, two hundred uh, and thirty nine million records. Google Trends would be interesting. I wonder how SQL is tracking against NoSQL. Okay, so let's type NoSQL, uh, and so you get ten million results. Huh. So Wait, 10 million on, results. You're saying versus, on LinkedIn? On LinkedIn, you get 10 million? Oh, that's I, that I got on Google. So on LinkedIn, okay. let's type NoSQL. And we have people 72,000. Wow, okay. So yeah, SQL crushes NoSQL. <laughs> I guess right. no, NoSQL is less of a skill. It's like, I do not have the SQL skill. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so yeah, so SQL is, is, is just out there and, and it's not going away. Um, there is a, a, a core question why people still write SQL 
Um, and you know, I have an answer there, and then there are other perspectives from other people there as well. Okay, I'm going to put that in the show notes. Uh, you can also look at uh, how all the NoSQL companies are implementing SQL now. So Couchbase is introducing a SQL layer. Uh, well, obviously, Hive and Impala and Presto uh, and uh, Hadapt uh, are, are all introducing SQL. Because SQL is, is just a very good language and API for data. And when people say that SQL doesn't scale, um, it's kind of hard to, it, it kind of doesn't make sense because it's just saying API doesn't scale. It's usually the underlying technology that does or does not scale. And so what we did, we took this most popular API, which is SQL, and we made it scale. Yeah, you know, it, and it's funny, um, there's a great Google talk that I'll also include in the show notes um, where it's like a, uh, a comparison of, of one of Google's uh, distributed SQL solutions versus uh, a distributed NoSQL solution. And it's like these two guys are giving, the, are giving the presentation and they're sort of giving these two competing presentations at the same time. And the, <laughs> the, the punchline is just that like they're both basically offering the same thing. It's just one is NoSQL and one is SQL. <laughs> So yeah, anyway. that's right. Yeah, so back to the API. Uh, so the API is the language, but also um, what people kind of uh, enjoy when they use SQL uh, that's written against the mature system is that it's very, very forgiving. Uh, and what I mean, what I mean is, uh, when you write a bad program, it doesn't perform. But many times, when you write bad SQL, uh, it still performs. And that's because there's a, a query optimization step that requires a lot of engineering that chooses uh, a very efficient query execution plan. Uh, and that's the maturity of SQL, and that's why it's really hard to make uh, a, a really good SQL system. So what we did is we hired you know, the uh, incredibly great uh, database engineers out of Oracle that that's uh, built our query optimization. Good strategy. Um, so the field of data science is exploding lately, and Matei Zaharia, the creator of Spark, started Databricks, and that actually has the stated mission of improving data science. Why is data science so important? And maybe you could define what you see as data science. Um, sure. Um, so we, we live in the database world. Right, and we see data science um, not quite front and center, uh, but on kind of on the periphery of the uh, what people uh, want to do uh, with data. But I think data science is kind of the uh, generation of insights and understanding uh, data, understanding specifically large data sets, right? Um, that could be structured, that could be unstructured. Uh, what's uh, people use uh, uh, MemSQL 4 when they uh, tackle data science problems is that scalability and persistence and the ability to deduplicate the data um, uh, inside the database. What they don't do uh, with MemSQL is they're not writing uh, kind of complex ETL extract transform load jobs or they don't do data cleaning. Um, and those are the things that you can do with Spark. So, again, that's, those technologies are very complementary. 
And I see uh, a unique property of the American economy is that we have a lot of overeducated and underemployed people. And like I can think of a lot of people I know who have four-year degrees and are working in a coffee shop or as a copy editor. And I look at these people and I'm like, these people should be data scientists. Like if we were running the economy the way we should, they would be doing data science. So uh, first of all, I guess, do you agree with this? And how can we make data science easy and intuitive enough for these types of people to leverage the tools? Um, so do I agree that baristas should start doing data science? <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe not. Um, so when you say that an overeducated person uh, works at a coffee shop because that person cannot cannot find a job in uh, and leverage the degree that uh, he, he got at school, then yeah, but maybe the answer is, is is right. But it might not be a data science, right? He might you know go get another degree in something that the modern economy really welcomes and and leverage his skills or her skills there. Um, but I think you touched on an interesting uh, point that, that data science is a hard thing right now. And uh, the, the reason to that is it's, it's still not as mature as, as other things, which creates interesting opportunities. Um, first of all, technology is going to get better and technology is going to get more consumable uh, and technology is going to uh, become uh, easier to use, scalable, faster. And, and more pervasive, uh, and, and certainly becoming a data science data scientist today is a great profession, and there's a lot of demand to it. Um, uh, what I think is going to happen is uh, technology as, um, as 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 industry will be pulling more and more people uh, uh, in itself, and and that just um, going to be a result of the economic incentives of going and investing in new te technology skills. And data what, science is just one of them. What I see is this interesting tension is like data science uh, in its current form, a lot of what it does, like think about what Palantir does, it's like it surfaces insights in a way that makes it easy for the human to pick out what are the relevant insights to focus on. And um, but But you think about it like, okay, so does data science grow as a field where we have more and more data scientists who are picking through these types of things uh, and, and like finding the edge cases? Or does the technology get good enough where we don't need that human augmentation and, and the computers themselves can pick out the outlier situations? Well, it's, it's all about productivity, right? So it's, you know, when you look into software engineering, when you look at data science, uh, there's still people doing the work. It's not, it's not machines, but they use machines as tools to make what they do day to day more efficient. Every time something new comes out, you know, uh, people, uh, uh, you know, what would be a good example in the past? Uh, well, since we're talking about data pro processing, that before relational databases, people had data problems. And they were solving those data problems by writing programs in COBOL or C. Uh, and that was just not efficient. And then relational databases came in, uh, and you can write SQL, and it's so much easier. And the, the result of that you just saw on LinkedIn by, uh, by doing the search of SQL. 
and I believe that that every industry will will have this kind of uh, com- uh, is it would it be fair to say commoditization curve, where it becomes so much easier to use, but then the skill will become in a way less valuable because it's just easier to use, and so that's why it's not compensated well enough. So MemSQL Ops is the command center for provisioning and administering MemSQL clusters. Um, I think this is a good tra- tra- uh, point to, to transition into, um, you know, as we were discussing the human-computer interaction and the, uh, the increasing productivity. What is the role of MemSQL Ops, and who is using it? Like, uh, is, this the, is this the DevOps side of, of MemSQL? Yeah, absolutely. So if you, if you look at, at uh, system software uh, that's kind of modern, Every, every system software, uh, you know, we, and we can talk about Nutanix, we can talk about, um, you know, Datastax, Cassandra, um, usually comes with, uh, with a dashboard. And it's an ops dashboard that lets you kind of glance over it and understand how the system is performing. And that's exactly what MemSQL Ops is. Um, the difference of uh, MemSQL Ops and other dashboards is... Uh, it kind of exerts this real timeness of the technology by uh, showing some of the metrics um, that uh, uh, of of the cluster in real time. So basically, it shows you CPU utilization, network utilization, uh, and, and and displays it right in front of you and, and updates it every second. So to begin to close off, uh, could you talk a bit about MemSQL's business model? Uh, sure. So, uh, MemSQL is a closed source technology, and uh, when and, and we were not really religious, right? So, we certainly consider uh, making MemSQL open source and, and understand what it would mean from the business perspective. And so, keeping it closed source allows us to be uh, a, a technology first company and a product company. Uh, what it means is that we we have uh, way more engineers than we have consultants. Um, uh, certainly, we have a sales engineering team uh, that that helps uh, our customers with you know onboarding the product or uh, engage with you know really large projects uh, with the like of you know Comcast, for example, or, or big banks in New York. Uh, but most of the engineering effort goes into improving the product, making it easier to use, uh, and making it scalable. Uh, and that's what uh, uh, the business model is. The business model is to create a great product um, um, and, and sell it, and sell it through uh, different channels such as cloud, um, direct sales, uh, and direct enterprise sales. Um, and we also introduce our community edition, which is uh, free forever uh, with unlimited scale. Um, and then we encourage the world to use MemSQL uh, and those who want support. Uh, and uh, enterprise features such as enterprise security, they uh, certainly uh, go and convert into enterprise customers. Yeah, and I think what you're articulating is something that was touched on during Big Data Week, which is basically there is no free lunch. You can have this open source uh, consultancy type of solution. It's not, uh, in a nutshell, better or worse than MemSQL's type of uh, company offering. Uh, It's just there's a different set of trade-offs. So 
Um, Nikita Shamgunov, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Uh, and don't hesitate to uh, send me more questions. I'm, I'm very available on email and uh, other forms of communication. Fantastic. Uh, well, uh, great talking to you. I'll talk to you soon.